we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. As expected, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates today. This is the third rate cut of this cycle. We're now down to 1.5%. But of course, what everybody has to remember is a year ago, when the Fed was hiking interest rates, the forecast from the Fed was that they were going to continue to hike rates. They were supposed to have another three or four rate hikes in 2019. And of course, a year ago, as the Fed was hiking rates, they were still shrinking their balance sheet and they were going to continue to shrink it. I mean, they were talking about autopilot. They were going to continue to do $50 billion a month of quantitative tightening. And they said this with a straight face. And everybody believed them. Of course, everybody except me. Now, maybe a few other people, but they weren't out there in the financial media. But I was telling anybody who would listen, which was not that many people in the mainstream, but certainly the people who listened to my podcasts, that none of this was going to happen. That the Fed was going to have to stop hiking rates and that they were going to be cutting rates in 2019. And that not only were they going to stop quantitative tightening, but they were going to go back to quantitative easing. And that's exactly where we are. Although Jerome Powell went out of his way. I think the first thing that he said when he made his uh, statement, his prepared remarks, was to reassure everybody that what the Fed was doing now with its repo program was not quantitative easing. right? And he basically drew a distinction between 
what the Fed was doing when it was doing QE and what it's doing now when it's not doing QE. And the main distinction had to do with the maturities of the debt that the Fed was buying, that when they were doing QE, they were buying longer-term government bonds, but that now they're buying shorter-term government bonds, and so therefore it's not QE. But this is really a distinction without a difference. I mean, who cares what the maturities of the bonds are? Now, I suppose if the Fed was buying short-term bonds, and when the bonds matured, they weren't going to buy them again, right? They were going to let uh, the market absorb uh, those bonds, but that's not what they're going to do. They're just going to keep rolling these bonds over as soon as they mature, or not bonds, bills, the the shorter-term ones. Every 90 days, they're just going to buy them and buy them and buy them. And so this is another, you know, source of financing of the Fed financing government debt. That's quantitative easing. I mean, why did the Federal Reserve do QE in the first place? To keep interest rates lower than they would have been had they not done quantitative easing. And by extension, to prop up asset prices because had interest rates risen, which they would have done, or they certainly would have been higher without QE than they were with it, had interest rates gone up, that would have put downward pressure on stocks, on real estate and things like that. Well, why is the Fed doing what it's doing today? For the exact same reason, to keep interest rates artificially low, to suppress the cost of borrowing, to help out all debtors so they can make payments on their debt, and to keep the stock market elevated, to keep real estate prices elevated. In fact, one of the places that we've actually seen a you know a, a, an improvement in the numbers, as at least as they relate to the GDP, and we got those numbers earlier this morning before the Fed hiked rates, we got the Q3 GDP number, which came out as a positive 1.9. That was better than the 1.6 expected. It was a little bit below the 2% of the prior quarter. But that was despite weakness in investments. Uh, the main driver of the 1.9% was the consumer. And you know part of that was housing. You know Housing sales have picked up because of the help from the Fed. Now, I think it's a temporary boost. I think the market is still going down. Uh, but the Fed was able to breathe life into a dying market temporarily. With these rate cuts. So the Federal Reserve is basically doing now what it was doing then for the same reasons it was doing it then, except it doesn't want to admit. Powell doesn't want to say that the Fed is doing quantitative easing. And the main reason is because he doesn't want to admit that the economy needs it. I mean, one of the things he keeps reiterating is that the economy is in a good place, right? That everything is good. Well, if everything is good, why do we need the emergency monetary policy when everything wasn't good? When we were trying to get the economy out of a bad place, we did QE. And if it's now in a good place, well, why are we doing it again? So that's why he wants to deny he's doing it. In fact, earlier this morning, before we got the GDP number even, and well before the rate cut, Donald Trump tweeted out, the greatest U.S. economy in history. Greatest in history, unqualified statement, the current economy is the greatest economy in all of American history. Now, of course, we know that is a BS statement, right? Just like, you know, it's puffery, just like Trump claiming his stakes were the greatest stakes ever. 
He's now uh, claiming that the U.S. economy is the greatest ever. And one of the uh, uh, reporters actually asked Powell to comment on that tweet. And Powell basically said, I'm not going to comment on anything that any politician says. Of course, Trump is not just any politician. He is the president of the United States. And I think he can he the the reporter should have re-asked the question instead of asking him to comment on what Trump said. Just say, do you believe that the U.S. economy today is the strongest it's ever been in history? But he doesn't even have to answer that question because the answer is obvious. I mean, the Fed would not have cut interest rates if we had the greatest economy in U.S. history. In fact, Powell was asked specifically by the reporters if he thought the current monetary policy was neutral or accommodative. And he admitted that it was accommodative. Now, it's obviously, it's massively accommodative. I mean, you could argue it's the most accommodative it's ever been, even more so maybe than when interest rates are at zero because the inflation rate is higher. I mean, Powell admitted that core CPI is finally above 2%. But if inflation, even the core, the way the government measures it, is more than 2%, yet the Fed just dropped interest rates to one and a half, you're talking about negative real interest rates of at least, let's say, 75 basis points. Negative interest rates. That is highly accommodative. I mean, why would the Fed be accommodating the strongest economy in the history of our country? Clearly, the reason that Powell thinks we need so much support from the Fed is because he knows the economy is weak, that without the Fed's help, it would implode. A strong economy doesn't need the help of the Fed. And in fact, Trump will admit himself. He says, hey, if I'm not reelected, the economy is going to implode. Well, if it was fundamentally strong, it wouldn't all hinge on his reelection. It wouldn't be you know, so unstable that simply impeaching him, because even if he's impeached, I mean, there's still a Republican. Right. Pence would be the president if Trump were impeached. But somehow that's going to implode this economy. Yet it's the strongest economy ever. Yet something as simple as changing from Trump to Pence is enough to cause the whole thing to come tumbling down. That, you know, that shows that it's it's not strong. It's just a house of cards. And it's only a question of when the whole thing implodes. But probably, you know, the most significant thing about the, the, the rate cut was if you look at the way the media reacted to the initial announcement, right? Because they put out the official press release that accompanies the quarter point cut. And the Fed tweaked the language a little bit from the the previous language that existed. And so based on this slight change, the interpretation was, hey, the Fed is finished cutting, right, with these three rates. And now it's kind of on a pause and it's kind of data dependent because the Fed is going to have to assess the incoming data and then determine its next move, right? That, okay, before that, we all knew that the Fed was going to keep cutting. But now that we've got these three cuts, you know, in our pocket, whether or not we get a fourth cut and a fifth cut depends on the data. The Fed is going to look at the data and assess it and then determine where it wants to go. And so it's possible, right, that the Fed could hike rates. At least that was the initial read of this statement that, you know, maybe the Fed is going to keep cutting. Maybe they're going to stay where they are. Maybe they're going to hike, right, depending on what the data is. And and I think based on that, right, this was seen as a more hawkish stance or a less dovish position than the Fed had taken before. So initially, the dollar rallied a bit on that perception. Gold sold off a little bit on that perception. But when Powell had the press conference, 
he didn't waste any opportunity in walking that you know perception back and basically telling the nation where the Fed was. And basically what what Powell said was that the Federal Reserve today has absolutely no intention of raising interest rates unless, right, there was a significant move up in inflation from its current level and that that move uh, was persistent, right? Now, Powell acknowledged that inflation is already over 2%, right? And But that's not enough to cause the Fed to hike rates. In fact, the Fed is cutting rates in the face of inflation over 2% and rising. But what Powell is saying is, no, no, no. We need to see a really significant move. I mean, he said really significant, not just significant, really significant move up in inflation that persisted before we would even consider raising rates. He didn't even say we would raise rates if we had a really significant persistent increase in inflation. He said we need a really significant increase in persistent inflation before the Fed would even consider the possibility of raising rates. Now, they still might not do it, right? And of course, they're not going to do it because they can't do it. But this is a very, very dovish admission uh, for Powell to make because back in history, right, the old adage was never let the inflation genie out of the bottle, right? And and why, why was that? Because once the inflation genie is out of the bottle, it is very difficult to get that genie back into the bottle, right? Anybody who's ever watched I Dream a Genie knows how difficult it is to get a genie back in her bottle once she has escaped, right? And she could do all sorts of mischief uh, before you could get her back in there. And so the idea is, hey, keep the genie bottled up because if the inflation genie gets out, I mean, you know, look out. And so what that means is be vigilant, right? Get Be preemptive. Don't, don't take a chance. But what is Powell saying? If inflation is already above 2% and he's saying, no, 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 I'm not even going to consider. The Fed's not going to even consider raising rates until we are significantly above where we are now and it's persistent. So where is inflation going to have to get? I mean, 3%, 4%, 5%? And how long is it going to have to stay there before Powell and the and his buddies at the Fed even consider a rate hike. And of course, if they let the genie that far out of the bottle, right? It's, I mean, it's not just letting genie out, it's genie and, and her twin sister. They're all out of the bottle, right? And maybe the, the, the blue gin too, right? All these genies out of the bottle, how are they ever going to hope to put the genie back in, right? The Fed is saying, we're going to let the genie way out of the bottle before we even attempt to put, to put it back in. I mean, why aren't the markets more concerned? The bond market, which actually rose today, the bond market should be getting killed. Where are the vigilantes when you have a Fed chairman admitting that there's no more vigilance, right? And in fact, every time Powell mentioned the word inflation, every single time in that press conference, it was prefaced by the word symmetrical. Symmetrical inflation, symmetrical inflation. That's all he says. What does he mean again by symmetry? He means inflation that's above 2% because it's supposed to be symmetrical for all the years that it was supposedly below 2%. But, you know, nobody will ask him a question, right? I guess in order to be at the press conference, you have to agree, you know, just to throw softballs, right? Not to ask any real questions or to follow up. But I wish somebody would ask Powell, 
to explain exactly what he means by symmetrical, right? I mean, how high does inflation have to go before it's no longer symmetrical? And how long does it have to stay there, right? I mean, if he says that, well, inflation can go to 3% and still be symmetrical, what if it's at 3% for a year, right? Two years. I mean, what is the time frame? I mean, how long can inflation stay above 2% before it's too long, before the Fed has to do anything about it? But of course, if the Fed is so lax when it comes to inflation and letting the genie out of the bottle, when prior Fed chairmen were so worried about letting that genie out of the bottle, they wanted to be preemptive. Well, you know, why does Powell think he has so much ability, right? It's going to be so easy for him to do what prior Fed chairmen were worried about. In fact, the reality is, it is going to be much harder for the current Fed to fight inflation and get the genie back in the bottle than it was for any prior Fed chairman, including, of course, Paul Volcker, right, who really had to get the genie out of the bottle, right? I mean, there was no preemptive uh, inflation fighting before Volcker took the job. And so when Volcker came there and he finally had to bottle up the inflation genie, interest rates had to go up to 20% in order to do that. Right. The longer you wait, the further you get behind the inflation curve, the higher interest rates have to go to get out in front of it. Well, if you have a lot of debt, then that that cure delivers a lot more short term pain. Now, we had a very bad recession in 81, 82 time frame because of those high interest rates. But can you imagine the severity of the recession we would have today? if interest rates even rose to a meaningful fraction of that number, let alone all the way back up to 20%. So for an economy that is so susceptible to higher interest rates, the Fed should be extra vigilant now about inflation and trying to be preemptive because of how painful it would be to try to get in front of an accelerating inflation curve and put that genie back in the bottle, except the economy is already so overleveraged, the debt bubble is already so big that we would have a massive crisis if the Fed did the right thing now. If the Fed's tried to stop inflation from running out of control now, like every, you know, like it should do, right? If it tried to fight early, we would have a crisis, right? We would already be imploding. We'd already be in this great recession or a greater recession. So the Fed can't do anything. So that's why the Fed has to pretend uh, that rising inflation is good. It has to pretend that it will fight inflation eventually, but not now, right? Because it can never actually do it. It can never even try to do it. The only key is when is the market going to wake up to this game, this con? When are they going to realize the box that the Fed has put itself in, that it is completely impotent? when it comes to inflation fighting, that it is all bark and no bite. And basically, it's not even barking yet. It's only talking about the prospect of barking in the future, but it will never bite. And when the markets figure this out, the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar. Gold is going to absolutely go through the roof. Now, we also got some more economic data that came out today. We got the ADP employment report, the private sector jobs. Of course, we get the official government non-farm payroll report on Friday. The consensus for October was for a gain of 125,000 jobs, which would have been a little bit less than the 135,000 jobs reported for September. And we ended up with exactly 125,000 jobs, you know, 
precisely what the consensus had forecast. But the revisions to the prior month brought the 135 all the way down to 93,000 jobs. So a pretty big downward revision. Uh, we'll probably get, my guess would be, we'll have another downward revision of this number. So I don't think we we probably hit the consensus. We probably got a, a weaker number. But the most significant aspect of the number was the fact that the goods producing sectors, uh, including manufacturing, they all lost jobs, right? Manufacturing down, other goods producing uh, jobs were lost during the month as we continued to add service providing jobs, right? And this is the trend that we had uh, all throughout the Obama presidency. We kept replacing, you know, higher paying goods producing jobs with lower paying service providing jobs, many of them part-time, and we're doing the same thing now. And of course, when Trump was a candidate, he pointed this out. He was critical of the loss of manufacturing jobs and higher paying jobs. And he promised to make America great again, in part by restoring these manufacturing jobs, by making American manufacturing great again. It was under that name that we were waging this trade war. Well, the reality is those trends have continued under Trump, we continue to lose uh, goods producing, higher paying jobs and add service providing, lower paying jobs. Yet instead of criticizing it, he's now claiming it's the greatest economy ever. And of course, all of this is going to come back to bite Trump in the 2020 election. You know, he he was elected president because he told the truth about how lousy the economy was when everybody else was pretending it was great. The Democrats were pretending it was great. Wall Street, the media was selling this line of this Obama recovery, which was phony. Well, now we have a phony Trump recovery. And instead of telling the truth about how weak the economy is, he's lying about how strong it is. And those lies are not going to resonate with the same voters who are going to be struggling in uh, 2020 when they go to the polls and they have even more debt than they had when Trump was elected, right? They're in worse shape. In fact, one of the things that Powell specifically commented on in his press conference, he stated that he doesn't see any problems in the economy with debt or leverage and that American households are in good shape, right? I mean, what, what is this guy talking about? I mean, do you have to be that blind in order to be Fed chairman? Do you have to be completely oblivious to any problem that's created by extra easy monetary policy. I mean, how can anybody say the average American consumer is in great shape and there's not an excess of debt? I mean, first of all, what do you expect after keeping interest rates at zero for as long as they did? How would there not be an excessive amount of debt? We've been on a borrowing binge. We've borrowed like we've never borrowed before. We're up to our eyeballs in debt. I mean, consumer debt is all at record levels. Record high credit card debt, record high student loans, record high auto loans. I mean, isn't Powell looking at any of the numbers, any of the delinquencies that are building up in the uh, the auto loan market? I mean, what about credit card interest rates being at all time record highs? I mean, how is that possible if the consumer is in great shape? The reason these credit card companies are having to raise rates despite rates being so low is to make up for all the borrowers who can't repay. In fact, I was reading this article just yesterday. I put it on my, my Facebook page, I believe, about these high-yield loans, right, where uh, companies, it's not payday loans, but they're longer term, where the interest rates in some cases are triple digits. They go from like 70% to 120% 
annual interest rates. And these businesses are flourishing. They're basically loan sharks, right? They're going to people who are struggling and loaning the money at exorbitant rates of interest, right? Now, why would somebody agree to borrow money and pay 120% interest on that loan? I mean, no family that's in, in fine financial shape would agree to such onerous terms, right? Only if you got no other choice. And one of the reasons that the interest rates on those loans are so high is because so many borrowers don't pay back anything. So the ones that make the payments have to cover the ones that don't pay anything. But the fact that business is booming in the loan shark industry is an indication that Powell doesn't know what he's talking about, that consumers are not in good shape. Because if they were in good shape, they would not be borrowing money uh, and, and, and these businesses wouldn't be booming. Look, I put another, uh, you know, article on my Facebook page uh, about uh, mattresses. You know, it was an article about how all these mattress companies are offering six-year, 100% financing at 0% interest. I mean, 100%, 0%. You're basically getting the mattress for free, and you're making your payments over six years with 0% interest. I mean, first of all, I mean, how do you have a six-year financing on a mattress? I mean, that's l- longer financing than what typically was the case when you bought a car. And now you're talking about a mattress. I mean, if you can't afford to buy a mattress, then don't buy one. If you have to borrow money to buy a new mattress, then sleep on the mattress you got. I mean, it's ridiculous to go into debt. But I guess if you don't have to pay any interest and you just spread the payments out over six years, I guess people are willing to do it. But what about all the risk that uh, the lenders are taking, because what's the collateral on these loans? I mean, what's a used mattress worth, even if you can repossess it? Next to nothing. But none of this stuff would be happening in in a sound economy. I mean, the Fed has taken this bubble to the mattresses. Oh, and by the way, speaking of my Facebook page, look, you know, I'm looking at my social media. We're moving through a couple of milestones. My Facebook page, I now have over 125,000 uh, followers or likes. I forget what you call it on Facebook, but that's my social media uh, platform where I have the fewest uh, followers. I, I just went over 170,000 uh, for my Twitter followers. And you know, about a year ago, I actually had fewer Twitter followers than on Facebook. And I've been tweeting more, so more people have been following me on Twitter. So you know, if you're not following me, follow me. And in fact, if you're following me on Twitter and you're not following me on Facebook, because a lot of people obviously are following me on Twitter and not on Facebook, because I have over, I have now 171,000 uh, Twitter followers, go and uh, like me on Facebook as well. Of course, my most followers are on YouTube. I am just a less than 200 subscribers away now from 270,000 YouTube subscribers. So clearly a lot of people who subscribe to my YouTube channel don't follow me on Twitter or Facebook. So if you are a subscriber to my YouTube channel and you're not following me on Twitter or Facebook, make sure and go to those platforms and follow me so I can increase my following and get you know more people uh, to uh, hear what I have to say or we tweet it or share it with, with their friends. My goal, I'd love to get my YouTube subscribers up to 300,000. So that's my short-term goal to go up about another 30,000. On Twitter, you know, the next big milestone, I guess, would be 200,000 Twitter followers. You know, I'm not even verified on Twitter, by the way. I mean, I actually wanted to get verified. I didn't know about it initially, about verification. A lot of people were saying, hey, you need to verify so people know it's actually you. Uh, but they stopped officially taking the verification. So you can no longer 
apply. I think if you have friends and you know somebody, they're still verifying accounts, but I have no way of getting my account verified. So even though I'm not verified, I still have over 170,000 followers on Twitter. But uh, I want to get that up to 200,000. Facebook, I guess the next milestone, maybe 150,000 likes on Facebook. But I, I do a lot of stuff on these uh, social media. Because remember, I'm not on the conventional uh, media as often. So if you really want to uh, hear my perspective or read my perspective, try to follow me on anywhere I'm active uh, when it comes to social media. Anyway, I already pointed out that the price of gold moved up as a result of uh, the Fed's rate cut and their their um, their clarification in the press conference. But we're still a little bit below 1500 just a few bucks. But I am expecting, as I said on my last podcast, a substantial move up in the price of gold, which could start at any moment. In fact, as more people digest the meaning of what Powell admitted to, which is something I've been saying all along, that the Fed has no intention of fighting inflation, that inflation numbers can get a lot higher before the Fed even considers raising rates. And of course, when they consider it, they'll reject it because the economy can't handle higher rates. If it could, they would already be raising them. So all of this is very bullish for gold and it's very bearish for the dollar. But I want to talk a little bit about Bitcoin because I mentioned Bitcoin on my last podcast on Thursday. And of course, I went out of my way to talk about this big head and shoulders top that it looked like had just been confirmed because Bitcoin had gotten down to about, I don't know, 7,200. We had gone through the neckline, which appeared to be around 7,500-ish or something like that. And it looked very bearish. And, you know, we were breaking down from a bear flag. And I talked about how technically weak the Bitcoin market was. And of course, the very next day, Out of nowhere, Bitcoin has a spectacular rally, one of the biggest rallies in the history of Bitcoin, right, up by better than 40% in a matter of hours. I mean, Bitcoin went from really about 7,500 to 10,000 and change. I think the highest I saw was about 10,350. And this all happened in a matter of hours. I mean, well under 24. I don't remember the exact number of hours it took. Uh, but certainly probably fewer than 12 hours to go all the way to the peak price. And of course, that generated all kinds of crazy excitement uh, in the Bitcoin community. Everybody was attacking me. Oh, Peter Schiff, you see how wrong you were? I remember one of my friends sent me an email You know, when Bitcoin went above 10,000. See, you missed your chance to buy Bitcoin below 10,000. You'll never get a chance to buy Bitcoin below 10,000 again, right? This is it. It's going to the moon, right? Everybody gets excited. As soon as it starts moving up, this is it. This is the moonshot that the hodlers have been been waiting for. Of course, I replied to my friend that I hadn't missed anything. And of course, we are back below uh, 10,000. As I am recording this, we're a little bit below 9,200 in Bitcoin, so better than a thousand off that spike high, but we're still well above that 7,500 area uh, where we rallied from. But I don't think this changes anything. I mean, the head and shoulders pattern could still be, I mean, we could still make the head and shoulders. We're back in the in the shoulder again. It's This shoulder is now kind of hunched from the last one. So it's still possible that that pattern could play out. Uh, but even if it doesn't, we're still in a bearish pattern. If you look at the height of this rally, uh, we we spiked above a downtrend only briefly, but we're right down below it. And I still think it looks a bearish. And also, as I've said many times in bear markets, they fall a slope of hope. And the crypto market is no different. In fact, hope 
uh, probably springs more eternal when it comes to Bitcoin than any other market. But the rallies in bear markets are always more spectacular than the rallies in bull markets because the whole idea is to create a bunch of false confidence to keep people on board. And if you read a lot of the, the comments and the articles about this great rally, hey, Bitcoin did 40% in one day. I mean, it takes the stock market years to do that. And Bitcoin does it in one day. This is great. Bitcoin is great. It's killing all the conventional assets. And, you know, the fact that Bitcoin can go up so much, that's what keeps people on board because they know this could happen. In fact, I recorded this podcast with Anthony Pompliani, uh, otherwise known as Pomp. I did a debate with this guy, too, on, on YouTube. You can see that uh, on Bitcoin versus gold. But he invited me on his podcast. I didn't even realize. I mean, I, I think I was talking to the guy for almost two hours. So it's a pretty long discussion. I didn't realize it would be that long when I agreed to do it. But I ended up staying on the phone. But we were talking during this rally. I think we were talking Bitcoin was already above 9,000. It hadn't gotten to 10,000 yet, but it already had this big spike. And, and one of the things that, that, that Pomp was saying is, well, look, look at this. I mean, isn't it worth being in Bitcoin just because it can have these kind of moves? And like, you're never going to get this kind of move in gold. And, you know, I would never say never. I mean, I mean a 40% move up in the price of gold is not impossible. I mean, it's already happened, just not in U.S. dollars, right? There are plenty of currencies where the price of gold has gone up by 40% in one day. I, it could happen. It probably will happen at one point in the U.S. dollar, too. But it's not something that's going to happen, you know, with any degree of regularity. And it would be, you know, an abnormally large move to have in one day. And yes, you know, Bitcoin potentially could have that type of move on any day, which, again, is another reason why it's not going to be money. Right. The fact that Bitcoin can be so volatile on any given day is another reason why it doesn't work as a medium of exchange. And why it doesn't work as a store of value. I mean, what if somebody got excited about Bitcoin and bought it uh, on Friday, Friday night at 10,000? And here it is, you know, 10% lower. That's a big move in a short period of time. And nobody would consider that a store of value. So at the same time, all these, you know, Bitcoin bugs are getting so excited about how much Bitcoin can move up on one day. They're also proving that Bitcoin is too volatile and too erratic to be a reliable store of value. I mean, if you just want to say, well, it's just this crazy uncorrelated asset that can do anything at any time, okay, but but how much is an asset like that worth? But also, the fact that Bitcoin, out of a very bearish technical pattern, could move up by 40% in a matter of hours shows you, I mean, real markets don't move like that. I mean, let's assume that there were some people who had been eyeing Bitcoin, right? Because it had been going down. And because it went all the way down from 14,000, now down to 7,500 or 7,200, they thought that Bitcoin was a bargain and they wanted to try to buy the dip, right? They wanted to come in and take advantage of the decline. Would they rush the price up? Would they just come in and just buy all the offers? Because the price went up initially from 7,500 to 9,000, you know, probably in, in an hour, less than an hour. I'm not sure how much volume it took to get the price up there. Most of the new buying that took place, if you look at, you know, the charts, most of the buying probably took place, you know, well above 9,000. Between nine and 10,000 is where most of the buying took. Well, I mean, if you thought Bitcoin was a bargain at 7,500, why would you pay 9,000? I mean, if you watched it go down, 
from 10,000, 9,000, 8,000, 7,000 because you were waiting for a bargain, why would you buy so quickly that you would destroy the very bargain that you were waiting for? I mean, what you would do if you just wanted to buy Bitcoin, you would buy it slowly. You would be quiet. You would say, hey, there's a weak market here. Let me just start nibbling. Let me buy and take advantage. Maybe it'll keep falling. I'll be able to buy more at a lower price. No, no, no. The goal of whoever it was that rushed into a weak market, right, like cowboys, they just bought every offer in sight. The goal was not to buy. The goal is to sell. You see, buyers want low prices. Sellers want high prices. So if you're trying to manipulate a market and move the price up, what do you want to do? You want to sell. You want to get a higher price from which to sell from. And, of course, what the big whales know who want to unload their Bitcoin is nothing excites the Bitcoin community like a big rally. Because the minute you get a rally, just like my friend, they get excited. Oh, that's it. We're going to the moon. We'll never see below 10,000 again. This is it. 50,000, 100,000. Here we come. They get excited and they buy more. Right. And then what happens? The people who pumped it up dump into the, the new buying that they created. Because all these Bitcoin hodlers, right, what they call the guys that hold on and never sell, no matter, whenever there's a rally, the last thing they're thinking about is selling. All they're thinking about is how rich they're going to get, right? The hodler's dream is to get rich when Bitcoin moons. And it's not even like a dream. They actually believe it. It's like going to happen, right? As long as they hold on, it's almost like a religion, right? I believe, right? This is going to happen to me because I believe, right? And so if you religiously believe that you're going to get rich, as long as you hold, because if you sell, then you're not going to get rich because you're going to miss out. So the holders never sell. But the whales, see, they get rich by selling because they have to convert their paper profits into real profits. They, they have already made a killing. All they need to do is get out, right? They have pumped up the market. They just need a sucker to buy so they can get out. Now, on paper, a lot of the whales are already rich. But they can't spend their riches, right, until they sell, right? Like Elmer Fudd, if they want to buy a mansion on a yacht, right, they got to sell their Bitcoins to pay for that mansion and that yacht and a private plane and whatever they want to buy. And so they need other people to buy. And, of course, they don't want to compete with all the holders out there, right? They want to make sure that other people, the small guys, are not trying to get out too, right? Because they need to get out before the market implodes, and turn their paper gains into actual gains. So they, they, ha they have different motivations. The hodlers get rich by holding and hoping for a moonshot. The whales get rich by getting out now. In fact, they can get rich even if they get out at much lower prices because they have so many Bitcoins that they bought so much cheaper. Right? They just have to realize those gains. So you have to understand what's going on behind the scenes in this market. And so they were trying to blame this rally on, you know, something going on in China or China embracing Bitcoin. That's all a bunch of nonsense. There is no fundamental reason for this market. We had a very weak technical market and somebody, people came in 
and maybe ran some stops, caused some people to cover in a weak market, and spiked it up and generated all kinds of enthusiasm. Oh, my God, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Here we go. Buckle up. We're going to the moon. And, of course, you know, we've been trending down. Now, I don't know that the pump is over yet because we really haven't broken down. But I think if we get below maybe 8,500, I mean, right now we're still 91, 9,200. But if we get maybe below 8,500, I think the pump is over and you better get ready for the dump. The last thing I wanted to talk about on today's podcast was, you know, all of this renewed interest again in the 70 to 90 percent tax rates. I was watching more, you know, over the weekend and on the talk shows and all these Democrats and progressives, you know, they they, they are very nostalgic and, and they look back at the 1950s and 1960s when we had the 70% plus tax rates or the 90% tax rates that we had, uh, you know, before we had the, the, the Kennedy tax cuts, right? We had these 91%, right, was the top rate. And they look back at this and they think that these were great rates, right? And they look back at the prosperity that America had in the 1950s and they make the, the bad logical conclusion that that prosperity was the result of those high taxes. And the reason the middle class is not as strong today as it was then is because we lowered taxes on the rich. And that's what destroyed the middle class. And all we need to do is go back to those high tax rates where the rich paid their fair share and the rest of us are going to do great just like they did in the 1950s. And all that is a bunch of nonsense, right? I mean, I've said this before, but I got to say it again because it's really becoming uh, you know, a, a, a popular topic of misinformation on the lamestream media. But America was prosperous in the 1950s, not because of those high tax rates, but despite those high tax rates. In fact, the reason that we were prosperous in the 1950s was because taxes were so low in the generations that preceded the 1950s, particularly for all of the 19th century. We built the middle class when there was no income tax at all, right? when there was no payroll tax at all. It was low taxes, right? the lack of taxation that enabled all the capital formation that raised the real wages of average Americans that created the middle class, that made it possible. Like I mentioned on my last podcast, for you know somebody who didn't even you know graduate grammar school to get a job and support a wife who didn't have to work and raise a family and not have to borrow any money. We created the middle class without taxes. By the 1950s, that was the high point. That was the zenith of America's power. It was actually all downhill from there. And in fact, one of the reasons that you know we were still so strong is you know after the Second World War we wiped everybody out. I mean, Germany was in ashes. Uh, Japan, right? We bombed it back to the Stone Age. So those countries were not a competitive threat. It did. It really took until the 1970s before the Germans and the Japanese were really back in business. But the reason that they were able to eat our lunch, uh, you know, in the 80s or the 90s was because we had such high taxes, right? When we had these 70% taxes, and even when they eventually were cut, right, American businesses were spending a lot of time trying to avoid taxes and not trying to make money. You know, if you have a 70% tax rate, right, it makes more sense for you to avoid taxes than to make money, right? If you can shelter a dollar of income so you don't have to pay taxes, if you're in a 70% bracket and you shelter a dollar, that makes you 70 cents. 
But if you go out and earn a dollar, you only get 30 cents. So it makes more sense to try to shelter the money you've already earned than to earn new money. And But meanwhile, you know, Germany and Japan, they're, they're growing their economies. And of course, our businesses are overspending on things because everything that was deductible, right, was able to reduce their, their tax burden. But people don't understand. All these liberals who are longing for the good old days when the rich paid 70% or 90%, what they don't understand is the rich didn't pay 70 to 90 percent. The rich are not that dumb. They didn't get rich by being dumb. What the rich did was avoid paying 70 percent taxes. Right? They did everything they could not to pay those taxes. And how do they do that? Again, people don't even remember what the tax code used to be like before they rewrote it. You know, now you've got four kinds of income. You've got regular income. You've got capital gains. You've got uh, passive income, right? All kinds of stuff. So if you're a doctor, right, but then you also have real estate and you have depreciation in your real estate, you can't, you know, use that depreciation to write off against your income as a doctor. Well, back when the tax rate was 70%, that wasn't the case. There was only one income and you could write off anything. So if you were a doctor, you know, in the 1950s, and let's just, you know, use you know, current numbers, you know, not the income back then, but let's say you were in the equivalent of $200,000 as a doctor in the 1950s, but then you invested in some real estate, you owned some rental properties, and you were able to depreciate those properties to the extent that the depreciation equaled your income as a doctor, you paid no income taxes on your income as a doctor because you were able to to write write it off. And there was all kinds of tax shelters. Professionals were not only investing in real estate, they were investing in oil and gas deals, they were investing in racehorses. There were all sorts of investments that were specifically designed not to make money, but just to shelter the money that you already made. And of course, you know, wealthier people, everything was run, all their expenses were run through their businesses. They put all their kids on their payroll, right? Because let's say you're in the 70% tax bracket, but your kid is in the 20% tax bracket. Well, just put your kid on the payroll, right? Then you just, instead of earning money, paying 70% tax and giving it to your kid, just pay your kid a salary, you know? And so a lot of the payrolls were padded with relatives in order for, to avoid uh, these, uh, these high tax rates. Of course, there was also a lot of cheating. Thankfully, a lot of people cheated, and so they didn't pay that. I mean, they used to say that uh, the income tax created more cheaters than golf, right? I mean, we didn't have the 1099s and the W9s and W8s like we had back then. It was very easy to not report your income if somebody paid you in cash. And of course, there were a lot more people using cash back then. We didn't have credit cards, right? So a lot of transactions took place in cash. And so a lot of people were able to not report their income. Today, you know, you make a payment, you report it. You fill out a form, you tell the IRS and all the payments are done, they're bank wire, or there's a, there's a record of everything. But you didn't have all these records back then when taxes were 70%, 90%. So it was a lot easier for people not to not to pay these taxes. So the reality is America was a success in the 50s because taxes were so much lower before we even got to the 50s or before we even got to the 30s. We built the economy on no income tax. We had a very wealthy economy and we destroyed it with the income tax and all these taxes. But the only reason that we even survived the rates as high as 70 or 90% is that there were enough loopholes in the law that people could avoid paying those types of rates. 
But of course, it was uneconomical. It, it made the economy less efficient. If people are devoting a lot of resources to avoiding taxes, those are resources and energies that are not devoted to growing the economy, right? So by lowering taxes and getting rid of a lot of the loopholes, that was a good thing. But if now we want to raise the tax rates back up, right, to where they used to be before we got rid of the loopholes and not put the loopholes back in, we're going to create a situation that is completely unbearable. There is no way anybody could pay a 70% tax with the code that we have today, right, without the ability uh, to shelter your money and, and eliminate that type of tax. People are not going to work and pay those kind of tax rates, right? And, of course, who are the biggest losers, Right. When rich people stop working, who are the biggest losers? Not the rich people, because they could decide to just stop working and live off the wealth they've already created. Just spend what they have. The losers are the people who would have benefited from the pursuit of additional wealth. Right. The employees who would have had jobs but now don't have jobs because the businesses are not growing or the customers who are no longer going to have the ability to buy the goods or uh, you know or utilize the services that might otherwise have been provided by these entrepreneurs trying to earn more money because if the government is going to take 70% of what they earn why knock your brains out just for 30%? You might as well just enjoy leisure, enjoy the wealth that you've already created, and stop trying to create more, right? Especially, too, if we get this wealth tax, that's going to create an even greater incentive uh, to spend your wealth rather than let it sit there and be taxed away by the government. But it's the wealth that generates the economic growth that ends up benefiting uh, the middle class. It ends up creating the higher standard of living, right, that everybody benefits from. We end up killing the goose that lays the golden egg.